Hello and welcome back or welcome to the Performance Rising Podcast. I'm Matthew Dunn and thank you for joining me on this exploration of how culture is created. In this, the very first episode of the Performance Rising Podcast, I speak with Steve Axtell, head coach of the Cortland State men's soccer team and director of coaching and club standards for the Syracuse Development Academy Youth Soccer Club. Steve is entering his seventh season at Cortland and with an overall record of 83-32-5, Steve has led the Red Dragons to three NCAA tournament appearances over the past four seasons. In this fascinating conversation, Steve dives deep into how he creates a winning culture based on values and how he sees his team community as a vehicle for developing young men to be positive, contributing members of society. On a personal note, I want to thank you for checking this podcast out. This podcast came about due to my fascination with team culture and I hope you find it as interesting as I do. This is the start. And like all starts, I know that both the podcast and I will learn and grow as we go along. Thanks again for being here, and welcome to the beginning of this journey. Steve, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Definitely. It's a pleasure. Uh, as we said a little bit here before we got on to recording, this is the first first episode you are the uh the lucky recipient of this so thank you for joining us of course yeah i'm honored there's so many things i want to talk to you about the more i read about you uh the more things i saw on instagram the more interested i became because i think you're doing some really interesting things with your team culture and we'll certainly get to all of that before we jump there though i want to start at the beginning where are you from what was your childhood like? Uh, let's see. So I'm from a really small town in upstate New York, um, Franklin, New York. It, so the town itself graduates maybe 40 kids a year. Um, so that's where we lived. We lived in the middle of nowhere, up on a mountain. Uh, nearest neighbor was probably over a mile away. Uh, my mother was a teacher, and so I went to school at a different school, actually, in Sydney, New York. And my father was um, a former military. He was in the army, and then did construction work. So, tell me about your dad. I'm interested. What's what is it like to be the the son of a military man? Um, I don't think he really brought the military to his parenting style, other than just things were very structured. Rules were rules. Um, he did certainly wasn't overboard with it, but. Rules were definitely black and white. There was a series of rules that you knew you just didn't touch, you didn't come close to. Um, but for the most part, I don't think he brought the military to our house, if that's you know kind of the question. But um, very structured, very disciplined. He was a guy that had kind of this mindset that if you decide to do something, you can really do anything. Um, he wasn't a, a guy that allowed anybody to make excuses and really kind of like set this belief of uh, really hard work, a really disciplined, focused mindset, and you can really do just about what you want. Um, and a good story with that. So he, his health, you know, towards the end kind of fluctuated up and down a little bit. And maybe um, six or seven years before he passed, he decided he wanted to lose a bunch of weight um, and get healthy again. 
And so for an entire summer, he just ate cantaloupe. And for about three months, he just had bowls of fruit for dinner, and that was it. And when people would ask, you know, what are you doing, and like, how do you do that, he just said, I, I just do it. Um, there's, there was no black, there was no gray area. It was very black and white to him. So, um, that story probably sticks out as to who he was in, in his mindset. Yeah. And, and you said the values of hard work and discipline, I would say that eating cantaloupe every night for dinner requires both. So this is a man that seemed to live his values. For sure. A hundred percent. Um, and, and how was mom? Very nurturing, very loving, um, she was an elementary teacher, first and second grade. So she was phenomenal with kids, phenomenal with us at home. Um, my, she was kind of the, the yin to his yang, and, and they parented really, really well together. They were such a great team. Um, she was very loving, very supportive. Um, she was kind of the shoulder to go cry on, to, so to speak, as a young kid, I can remember. Um, but she definitely... As I got older, you know, pushed in the right ways. Um, she valued the right things. They were always on the same page. Her and I are exponentially close still to this day. Um, you know, she is definitely one of my people. Um, that is, you know, in that small circle that I would do absolutely anything for in a heartbeat. That's incredible. Yeah, that's that's really incredible to hear. So, yin and yang, we have. Um, is rigid the right way to describe your father? And I don't mean that in the negative sense. Uh, but I guess I'm looking at mom is very nurturing and giving. And dad is, is certainly giving and nurturing. But he's the, the yang, so to speak. And he's the, the kind of the discipline and the focus. Maybe, you know what? Why don't you tell me how those two complement each other? Because I'm not doing a very good job. No, I think you nailed it. Um, if you if you know anybody that's listening takes rigid in a positive direction, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother. Uh, he's 10 years older than me. And he and I are very different. One, probably because of age um, and the times that, you know, we were kind of going through the house. Um, he is definitely an academic. I, I would classify him as a genius. I don't know if in his realm he would say those things, but um, he's a, a plant geneticist and biologist at Penn State and does some really fascinating stuff. He'll send me some of the things that he's doing, and I can pronounce maybe you know two-thirds of the things that are going on there. So that's how I know it's good. Uh, but yeah, so he and I, um, in terms of our interests in life, we're very, very different, but I think we uh, have both. We would define ourselves as being successful. We define ourselves as being really happy. Um, we're both very competitive, in two different realms of life, but very, very competitive people. So a lot of that you could probably tie back to the nurture side of things. Um, yeah, he, when we were young, I'd say he was probably half parent, half brother. Mm -hmm. Right. And so depending on what age and period of time we were in, our relationship was definitely different. And now, you know, once the youngest one becomes an adult, you can kind of form the adult relationship of a sibling. And that's where we're at now. And then, uh, so Seth Godin, I don't know if you've ever read any of Seth Godin's work, but he's a marketer and he likes to define culture, of which we will get to your definition soon, uh, as people like us do things like this. So I get a great sense from you of the people like us, this really rich, caring, collective group 
how would you distinguish yourself by your actions? What was unique about the way your family did this things, quote unquote things? Wow, great question. We were very close. Um, parents and siblings very close, I would say. Our extended family, maybe due to, you know, kind of distance and travel and like where we were located, um, we would see every so often. So family to me is definitely that intimate, the people that lived right in the house with me. Um, those people I would define as really, really close family. And then family beyond that are obviously people that you love and admire and, and want to cultivate relationships with, but the time spent was a lot less. So family to me was definitely inside that home. And when you are out of sync, when you are out of sync with that family unit, and maybe that means you didn't wash the dishes, or maybe that means you didn't follow a rule, how was that out of syncness communicated to you? How did you feel that? I don't know, because that was probably at a point where I can't remember because I was so young. Um, right. I'm definitely and was a rule follower. I loved the structure. I loved the discipline. I actually function really, really well when rules and expectations are clear. Um, so I don't have memories of really kind of testing the waters in terms of the daily norms. You know, obviously teenage kids are, are up and down a little bit, but in terms of the sitting down for dinner and, and doing the things that we did, I don't think I would ever questioned it after that point in my life that I can't remember, you know, three or four years old. Yeah. And you can remember everything beyond. I don't remember doing anything different. Fascinating. So you mentioned soccer. Take me up, take me through soccer. How did you get involved and in, what was your youth soccer like? So my brother being 10 years older, um, he started soccer and at the point of the country that we were in, he was probably on like the first soccer team that the high school offered, right? Like generation, generationally, that's kind of where he was at. Um, he was a goalkeeper, and so he always wore a different color uniform. So I wanted to be a goalkeeper because, you know, he's doing that at 16, and I'm definitely wanting to do that at 6. And so I kind of fell in love with the game in that way. Um, I think in those really, really young ages – and again, our nearest neighbor was like a mile away, and all of my friends that I went to school with are 30 minutes away. Um, I just had a yard and some trees and a little kick wall and something, and I had a soccer ball. And so that was really like I formed a relationship with the ball by myself, maybe out of necessity, you know, maybe to not uh, make my parents crazy. So every time it was, all right, get out of the house, you're bugging us, it was just me and a soccer ball. And so I kind of fell in love with it there, and it was really the only sport – that I found that I could do by myself, you know, like I liked baseball and I had a baseball glove and played when I was in little league, but I couldn't go out in the yard and do it by myself. Um, so every other thing that I tried that I liked as a kid slowly started to go away because I couldn't do it by myself. And so I was outside with a ball, um, more than I could ever imagine as a young kid. Um, soccer in our area wasn't big in terms of club soccer, but we had a really good youth rec program. And so, you know, it was the typical, I'm on the yellow team this fall and a uh, bunch of little, you know, yellow versus purple weekends and played with all my friends there. And then it just kept growing. I would do some soccer camps and I'll get to it in a little bit. 
later on down the road here, but um, one of the most influential people in my life was actually the guy that ran that soccer camp. And I didn't know our relationship would go that direction, but I started going to his soccer camps when I was young. And these were like seven weeks of soccer camps in the summer. And you could kind of bounce around and pick whatever ones you wanted. So eventually I started doing multiple camps a summer, really got into it, found some coaches that like, inspired me and taught me that the game was a lot bigger than it was in our area. And if you kept going, you could kind of branch out. And it slowly evolved to where uh, I think I was 14 or 15 years old when I first started to go to Albany and play my club soccer there. And then from there, the world was a whole new place. And, you know, kids were at the same level and at the same commitment level and, you know, kind of loved the game like I did. And then from there, it kind of took off. Um, And then I doubled down and wanted to make a career out of it, whether it was playing. And statistically, it was never going to be playing. And so I just stayed in it as a coach. This is fantastic. I'll put a pin in this. There's so much here I want to unpack. Uh, I want to go back first to you in your yard with a soccer ball. So this is something you and I share in common. That was my uh, happy place. And, and I want to know what that meant to you. What was that like to be out there with the ball? Just you and the ball. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I can't really speak to the emotions I had then. I just know I did it all the time. And now being a parent, I can see, you know, the things that our kids do all the time, they love them. And so I must have loved it, like, you know, like ours are doing right now. So um, I must have just been in love with kicking that ball around. And we had this kind of like undulated yard. It certainly wasn't a soccer field. And so there was, you know, things in the way and a tree here and a tree branch, you know, hanging over where I wanted to kick it. So I remember just trying all sorts of new things with the ball. I'm going to try and curve it around that tree and hit the garbage can and just kind of play games with myself. And I think that's really how I fell in love with it. So Steve on the local team, before we go to Albany, who are you on the team? I would say I was kind of the Pied Piper of soccer in our area. Um, Upstate New York in those small kind of rural towns are certainly not soccer towns. Yeah. And so I had this group of friends in school when I was young that didn't play soccer. Um, kids that I identified with and really like enjoyed. And they were my really good friends and great friends even to this day um, that were kind of maybe your typical football, basketball, baseball type of families and, and kids. And so when I got to soccer, it almost like opened up a new group of friendships of kids that maybe in school I wasn't as close with. Um, I got to meet new kids, um, but ultimately I don't think there was ever a team that I was on where someone loved the game more. Um, There's definitely teams where kids maybe were better, but um, in terms of just passion for the game and like, this is what I do and I identify with this sport. That was always me. And I was always trying to get those kids on that team to that level. Um, you know, playing more, practicing more, training more, enter new tournaments. Um, so I would call it probably the Pied Piper of soccer as a young kid. So Pied Piper is a leader. How did you learn to be a leader? I don't know if there was a time where it was learned. It's probably a culmination of, you know, some home training. And maybe it was just the fact that I loved it so much that I had to try and get others to love it as well. Um, 
it was it was an area where the market was rich for someone who <laughs> liked soccer because up until that point I didn't have any friends that liked it any more than I did. And so I was always trying to get even those kids that were, you know, let's say the, the football players in our school, I was trying to get those kids to play with me. Uh, I was just trying to get anybody that would, you know, go outside and kick that thing around for 10 minutes. Let's go do that. Um, I was the kid at recess putting shoes on the grass in empty little space. And we'd be trying to get more kids to come play. Um, boys, girls, older, younger, just let's throw some shoes down in these little goals and, and let's play. So I was the kid with a soccer ball at recess. I was the kid with a soccer ball kind of in my backpack. That's just who I was. And how, so how did you get kids to play with you? Like what was the actual techniques you used? So you got Johnny football player and you have, you know, the, the non-soccer player over here. And yet they all wanted to follow the Pied Piper. Why did they want to follow you? What, what did you do to get them to follow you? I have no idea. I can't remember that far back. Um, probably excitement mm-hmm. would be one. Uh, consistency would be another. Um, you know, when you're young, the peer pressure works really well. And so I'm sure there was a lot of, you know, if I can get that kid to come play, um, those seven kids always play with that kid. And so maybe I'll just try and get him to come play. Um, since I can remember, I've always been successful at influencing. And I don't know if that was learned or if that's genetic. Um, I have no idea, but I've always been successful at influencing and kind of picking out the people that need to be influenced to bring larger groups. And so I would say that some of those traits were maybe learned on, on the recess, you know, fields and courts and all that. So is this something you think about or you feel? And how, feel. So, yeah. So I think we're going to be talking about this Definitely. a little bit later. Uh, I think this is going to be a thread. Um, but, but now we go out of the small town and we go to Albany. So, I'm going to assume you were the big fish in a small pond. Now you're at Albany, uh, geographically and in soccer, not the big fish anymore. Who were you on that team? Probably very humble, uh, very nervous, definitely the first time going up. Um, you know, it wasn't me that drove it, so I didn't know much about it. So it was people that would talk with me and say, hey, there's, there's bigger and better teams, and if you really want to make a thing of this, you should go and try and be in those teams. And it's funny, I remember with my parents and I were actually debated, you know, there's kind of two places we could go. One was Albany, one was Binghamton. And we were relatively right in the middle of both of those. Um, and so we kind of made a decision and we did some research and we felt like the, the better place was maybe in Albany, who knows. But that's the decision we made. And those first couple of weeks, I'm sure, were, you know, I was very nervous, um, quiet, introvert, all of those type of things on a new team. Um, I'm actually quite reserved and quiet in general um, with groups and settings that I don't know and that I'm not comfortable in yet. And then night and day different once I understand the group and like the group. And so um, I can probably scale that back to a time when I was 15 years old and, and doing the same thing with those groups. And what was that team like? Definitely... Uh, a variety of people and a variety of kids. And so from where I come from, um, you know, obviously the culture and the norms and all that are 
probably much more similar than they were on that team. And so it was my first chance to play and really be a part of consistently over time in an environment where people were a lot more different than I was and grew up different and had different upbringings. Um, you know, much like you would get on a college team or, or when you go away from home, um, I kind of had that with my club team because my club team was an hour, hour and a half away. And so even just geographically, you know, growing up in Albany is very different than growing up in Franklin, New York. And so uh, getting used to that, that was great. Um, that team was very different. Um, it had a lot of different personalities. I still remember just like how funny some of those kids were um, and like how entertaining they were. Uh, just the personalities on that team, I think, were pretty incredible. So I really enjoyed that. And they were all really good players. And so I loved that too, uh, that there was a lot more of a consistent and common um, level of play from top to bottom, you know, top of the roster to the bottom of the roster, quote unquote, was very similar. So going back to this, people like us do things like this. How did that team do things? Well, how did you, what did it feel like to be on that team as a player and a teammate? What made that community of people unique and special? It was much more professional than I had of an environment that I had ever been a part of. So even as far as, you know, the full kits and the travel bags and suits and like just the gear that you wore um, was all matchy matchy and, you know, looked great and everything was Nike and new and fresh. Um, and so that was new for me, obviously. Um, so it like looked professional. Um, it felt professional. I had a coach that, you know, was a college coach at the time. And so that was definitely the highest level coach that I had been given up until that moment um, he asked more he demanded more um, the things when you were at training were much more serious than any team that I had been on before um, it was probably more about uh, performance than just having fun with a soccer ball and I really enjoyed that I love that that was probably my first hook to being involved in a group and I think I had it as an individual, but being part of a group that was forced to perform and had expectations. And from there, um, you know, you can kind of grow accordingly. And I bet you enjoyed that pressure. A hundred percent. Yeah. Finally having someone to push you. Yeah. Um, and kids that also wanted that too. You know, like I said, that the variance from top of the bottom to or top to bottom of the roster was not that great, and so everyone seemed to feel like me. Yeah. You mentioned a particular soccer coach that had a big influence on you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and actually, the greatest influence that he had was in the coaching world. Um, is actually when I went and started working for that camp, and uh, the guy's name is David Ranieri. Um, he's still probably, if someone asked, you know, to pick one mentor, he's the one that really like shaped my path in coaching soccer and wanting to coach soccer. Um, so we ran this camp that, um, you know, goes for seven weeks. And as a young kind of staff member, it's kind of a grind. You know, you get there at eight and you leave at 435 and the days are hot, the days are long. You know, you're working with seven-year-old kids, depending on what age group you're with. So it's a little bit of a grind, but he always had this, like, almost mantra of it's all about the kids. 
Um, and that every single decision that you make as a coach in that environment, regardless of what you're getting paid, if you're a volunteer, how you feel, if you're sick, if you're happy, if it's raining, if it's sunny out, like it's just all about the kids and what that experience is like for the kids. And so that's definitely my number one mentor to shaping those type of behaviors beyond being a player. Why is that important? Why is making it about the kids important to you? Uh, from from a business standpoint, you know, they're the consumer. And so if you don't have kids, you don't have coaches. Uh, that's number one. Um, and I think it definitely allows you to then go a little bit deeper and say, all right, well, not every kid is like every other kid. And, you know, that kid might be at camp for a very different reason than that kid is at camp. And if we just go back to that single mantra of it's all about the kids, well, why is that kid here and why is that other kid here and how can we make both of those kids happy? And if they both get in the car loving what just happened at camp, then you did your job. And so I think even just that base mantra that allowed you to kind of dig deeper and if you wanted to be really good in, as a coach in that camp, you kind of understood that you were there for the masses. You weren't there for just the good players. You weren't there for just babysitting. You were there for absolutely everything in between. And he critiqued you, you know, like he would have evaluations and, you know, you'd have to run a session and he would critique you on all those type of things. You'd get a, a written evaluation at age 18 when you're working with eight year olds, you know, and, and how you did and what you looked like and what your behaviors were and why did you do this? And you took too long to say that. And those three kids weren't paying attention and you didn't notice uh, those type of things. Um, and so he was really that one that kind of drove home that passion for coaching because coaching at that moment in my life could have been light years away, right? Like I'm doing it here, but there's people doing it so much better and it's a craft and it's an art and there's really like, there's no end to the process and you can just grab a hold and just keep going and keep getting better and trying to perfect that craft. It wasn't just showing up and rolling balls out. And so I had a person really driving me for, towards that at age 17, 18 years old, which was pretty neat. That's, that's really cool. And we're going to circle back to this. Um, cause I'd love to hear what you have to say about coaching. Uh, but before we do that, you, you go to Albany and do well mm-hmm. enough to get on the radar of, of Cortland. Yeah. And, and now you, you come to Cortland. I actually chose that? a different school first. Um, so I had chosen Oneonta, Oneonta State first um, in my recruiting process. And then I actually transferred to Cortland a year and a half later. Um, so I made the choice that was right at 18, but not right at 19 and a half type of thing. So um, what changed? What was right at 18 and what wasn't right at 19? Uh, just the things that I felt were important as a young kid. Um there's like way too much ego in my first choice. Uh, you know, Oneonta at the time was Division One, and so that seemed to be a thing that was much more of an influencer than it should have been. Um, I wanted to keep climbing, um, but found out pretty early on in my college career that I loved the game so much that I wasn't a person that wanted to sit and, and not be on the field playing. And uh, as a goalkeeper, really only one of you are, are going to play, and the other player that um, was the starter at the time was also a freshman. And so um, I certainly 
would have been fine with some light at the end of the tunnel, but I felt like maybe that light at the end of the tunnel was much further away than I wanted it to be. And it was right around the time when Oneonta had started to become too close to home for a college kid. Um, I went initially for childhood education, and that's what I thought I wanted to do in terms of working with kids. And like I said, I loved that camp and coaching at the camp, and my, my mother was a teacher, so those type of things seemed to fit when I was 17, 18, making those decisions. And then when I got into college, I found out I wanted to go a different path, and then I actually chose exercise science. And so there's a lot of different things that led to me leaving, um, soccer being one of them, uh, a major change and an interest in terms of what I wanted to learn about was definitely another one. And then geography probably was number three. Okay. So you leave one environment and you end up in another. So now you're in Cortland. What was that like walking onto that team? Um, that was interesting because, you know, I was a transfer and, uh, Still at 19, in my head, well, I'm a Division One transfer going to Division Three, and whether that was subconscious or not, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't say those things, but um, in my head, I was pleasantly surprised at how good the level was, regardless of Division One or Three, um, and so that was a really unique kind of like first moment of, I didn't need to sacrifice like level of play or any of that type of thing, or the things that I felt were... Um, I was looking for, so I didn't need to sacrifice any of those. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised showing up, formed instantly amazing relationships, probably much closer relationships than I had at the previous school, uh, largely in part to, you know, I'm two years older at the time and, and looking through a little bit different lens in terms of the, the people and the experience that I wanted to have. And so instantly made phenomenal friends and to this day haven't left. So that's been a pretty special place. What did it feel like to be a member of that team? So what was that um, like being a coach, coach on a team at that, that time, you had uh, literally just played for? was a phenomenal person. Uh, we can definitely start there. So just base, core, um, he was just such a good person. He's the type of guy that if your car won't start at 5 a.m. and you need to get to work, he's going to show up there with a cup of coffee and a smile on his face and help you no matter what. Um so that's who he was, and I think that's what he tried to instill in everybody, and I really liked that. Um, it was definitely much less cutthroat than some of the other environments that I had been in um, in terms of just the personalities. There didn't need to be such strong business-like personalities between players um, because the person at the top was just such a good person and, and wanted the players to be really good people first. Um, and so that was that was refreshing. That's kind of what the team felt like at 19 years old. And what did that coach do to build culture? Good relationships. You know, he definitely wanted you to have positive relationships. He would ask about your family all the time. Um, you know, the conversations that you would have with this coach whenever you got kind of one-on-one or, or there was a couple of you in the office weren't necessarily about soccer always. It was more of, you know, how's your family doing and how are you doing in school and you know, what do the next couple of years look like for you? And when you graduate, what do you want to do? And so he was, I think, definitely driven towards all of the other facets other than soccer as well. And so that was probably a lot of the culture there. Um, it's just coming from him is that life is bigger than the game itself. And it's great because the game kind of brought us all here together and we can still try and, and win games and 
do what we love in the game, but ultimately, uh, I think he was at a point in his career where the relationships mattered much more to winning. So the players definitely felt that too. Was there a pause between playing and then coming back as a coach? Was there a gap? No gap. Yeah, straight away. Um, I actually, so I missed a season, tore uh, an ACL combination thing and did all the rehab and came back. And so I had an extra year to play. So I actually played in kind of that like four and a half year span. So I became an assistant halfway through the semester or through the year. So in January, that spring semester, I started um, and instantly I started taking my grad classes and kind of going down that path. Um, so yeah, no gap, nothing in between, just one, went one way to another. And what was it like uh, coaching on a team and coaching a bunch of players that you just played with? Definitely tough. And so again, going back to you know my mentor and coaching, stayed in touch with him um, and still worked for him over the summers. And so his biggest piece of advice was, you know, you have to separate from the players in all aspects, not just, you know, now you're sitting in a different place on the bench and you're doing different things. So I actually moved to a town called Lansing, which was maybe 15, 20 minutes from Cortland. Um, I felt like that was important to remove myself from the college environment, not even live in the same town, not cross social circles, um, really like physically remove myself and create some distance there. Uh, I was taking grad classes at the time, and so you know, even academically, there was, there was no similarities with the players. Um, I had conversations with some of the players that I was still close with that, you know, look, this is a career of mine, and this is what I want to do, and so there might be some things that are said or things that happen that you know, maybe don't reflect uh, our friendship relationship but they're definitely going to reflect our coach and player relationship. And you've got to honor those. And if you can't, um, then, you know, the friendship relationship has to suffer. And I remember making, you know, conscious decisions that, you know, my career and, and what I wanted to do was so important that um, if those friendships couldn't be saved, then I had to always default on the side of the line of coaching in my career and be a little bit selfish with it. Um, but I was very upfront with the kids that I was close with, um, and th- those were my expectations, and that's what I wanted. And you know, I, I hope that they could respect that. And um, thankfully, all of them could. You know, there was no hiccups, and and I definitely made that really strong jump to being their coach when we saw each other. Um, and then, um, you know, years down the road when they graduated, we kind of rekindled those friendships back again, and and those were the same. So. Um, Looking back, it all worked out really, really well. I can see how I was probably fortunate to not have any hiccups in that aspect of life um, and that things did work out as well as they did. I can see that going sideways for a lot of different people in a lot of different scenarios, but I think that open communication and and how convicted I was that that was the path that I was going to choose led to all of those relationships being saved and, and things were great. So did you know at that point that you were going to be a coach or was it just something that was convenient uh, while you were taking classes or you were all in? 100% coaching. I was never, ever going to turn back. Okay, so you're assistant coach. And then how long before you become head coach? Two years. Two years. And in those two years when you're assistant coach, how would the players describe you? I had really high expectations for them. Um being early 20s, winning was, was very, very important and kind of making my mark on the coaching world. And um, so I was definitely probably the, the person that drove them to be more competitive, uh, get in the weight room more, 
Um, so again, the coach at that time was very relationship driven. And so to complement that, I would say I was very soccer driven and, and soccer focused and gave the players that side of the game. So tell me what, uh, what, what was the process of becoming a head coach? So head coach leaves and you're there, you apply, get the job. Mm-hmm. What did that feel like? Yeah, that was actually a tricky point in time. Um, so the program itself had actually, from a wins and loss standpoint, had gone downhill. Um, and so the year, my last year as an assistant, uh, the team had only won three games. And so uh, the players who are all you know hyper-competitive and, and trying to win every single game possible, um, they wanted more. And so it was this unique kind of time when they wanted that next person to be the person that was going to help them try and win more games through and through. Um, I felt like I could definitely do that. I had enough love and passion and desire for Cortland that that's the only job that I wanted in that moment. Um, but not being kind of foolish, I had to apply to other jobs and, and go on other interviews and kind of protect myself as well. Um, so I went through the process um, I had a couple really great allies in the department, some relationships that I had formed. Um, but ultimately, I, I was actually third choice for the job. There's another guy, Wade Jean, who accepted the position, was offered, accepted, um, came to campus, actually met with the team once, and then, for whatever reason, uh, declined about a week later. And so then they, by the time that they moved on to number two, uh, number two had also moved on. And so by default, I think they kind of had to give it to me. And um, I wouldn't have chosen it. I could have been the 10th pick and they still would have offered it. And I still would have said, absolutely, yes. doesn't matter what you're going to pay me. It's always going to be a yes. Yeah. Okay. I really want to understand where the team was when you took over. Mm-hmm. So as you just said, there was a, a dip in expectations and performance on the field. Mm-hmm. What did the team feel like to you at that point when you took over? So I'd say the culture that they had um, was not one that was going to win them games. So it was very much a be a good person, be a normal college kid, and still play soccer. Um, and actually, when we first started... Uh, our journey together, that first team in 2012, um, you know, one of the things that we would say consistently is absolutely none of us know what it takes to, you know, win the conference championship or the an NCAA tournament game. Like, we have no idea. Um, all that any of us can do is just put all of our chips in the middle of the table, work as hard as humanly possible, collect some data points of you know, how did that do? Um, did those behaviors result in more wins or result in what we wanted to get and then kind of change behaviors from that? And so that very first year, we had no idea what it was going to take, um, but we knew we were going to do everything that we possibly could. And then we just kept learning from each other. So you mentioned the C word, the big culture. Mm-hmm. And so now, now I'm going to ask you, what is your definition of culture? I think culture is something that um, just daily norms, daily behaviors, daily actions. Um, it are the things that are non-negotiables that the players hold true to. Um, it's almost like a, a series of family values. Um, and I think that 
culture can change the second you know one player leaves or one player enters um it's now a different series of interactions and and things but um i think you can maintain culture by having the same actions behaviors um, common threads that players know that they're not going to mess around with Um, i think culture should be something that they take outside of the game and so obviously there's going to be a feel to practice and a feel to games and a feel, you know, to the weight room. Um, but they should also have a feel outside of it. And it should be actually pretty similar. Um, you know, a Cortland soccer player, and I always I tell this to recruits, should look and feel different to you than any other soccer player. And if it does, you know that you found a place, um, you know, that has a special culture. And that's not to say we have the most special culture but it's a unique culture. It's a special culture. Um, and so in the recruiting process, let's say with kids, um, they should be looking for a team that has a culture, but then also one that they can identify with. Uh, because so I, yeah, go ahead. I couldn't, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say, I couldn't agree more with you. When I'm talking to recruits and, and young soccer players, this is the number one thing we talk about. And it's also the number one thing that's ignored. A hundred percent. And why do you think that is? Um, I ignored it. I think male ego is huge. You know, um, I tell kids that, you know, what's going to be really awesome your senior year of high school is wearing an NC State sweatshirt around and telling all your friends that you're going to NC State. But what's really not cool is getting to NC State and thinking that that sweatshirt's going to save you. And, you know, now that you're going to have this inflated sense of self because you're wearing, for instance, the NC State sweatshirt, you know, ACC and Division One. Every other kid made that same decision. And what's actually going to matter is how you feel, what you're a part of. Um, does it make you happy? Do you want to wake up in the morning and like really get to work? Um, you know, are you playing? If that's important to you, are you playing? Are you on the field? Um, how long is it going to take to get on the field? Some of those type of things are actually what's more important than at 17. That nice sweatshirt's going to look pretty good to everybody, but it's not going to keep you warm when you're actually in that environment. So how do you know this and where did you learn it? Hmm. Um, well, I transferred, you know, so I think that path, I made, I will put my hand in the air and say I made 100% the wrong decision for me. Um, not that there was anything wrong with that school, but for me, I should have been looking through a very different lens. Um, I didn't have myself figured out at 17 enough to make the decision that, you know, would have been right in the moment. And so it actually took a year, a year and a half to learn who I was in that environment to know what I wanted out of that environment. And so how do you, how do you instruct recruits to focus on this? So when you have a 17 year old come through Cortland, how do you tell this young man that this is important? Assuming that many do not know that it is. It's really hard. So it's hard to convince the 17-year-old of that because they also think that they have themselves figured out. And by all accounts, if I tell them that they don't have themselves figured out and they think they do, I've almost created a disconnect with them anyways. Um, so I'll tell them just that. I'm like, you want it? like, it's going to be awesome wearing that sweatshirt around school. Um it's going to be great putting that on your Instagram account. Um, it's going to be so cool for you in the next you know, nine months 
And that's really going to be great. You know, club soccer, you're going to go to tournaments and your roster is going to say committed to wherever. Um, and I'll almost like lead them down the path. And I'll say, but, you know, eventually August, whatever, is going to hit that freshman year. And I just want you to think about that. And what you want out of that one day. Um, not your friends right now. Um, not your social media account. I want you to think what you want on that day. And if you still want it on that day, that's great. Um, and I'll say, if there comes a time when that environment was the wrong decision for you, you've got a, an open door back. Um, we do a really nice job with getting transfers here. And I think it's because of that recruiting message when they're 17. Um, and they know that I went through it. And so I'll actually take that approach with the player um, because I don't think telling them that they're wrong is necessarily the right answer for them putting their trust in me. Um, I'll also recruit the parents very differently. Um, and I'll start asking, you know, if they have a price tag to their kid's happiness. And, you know, they're going to really want to put that NC State or whatever ACC school sweatshirt on too. You know, they're going to love wearing that around in the stands of their kids' games or senior year. Um, but would you trade that sweatshirt in for your kid's happiness? You know? Um, wow. And that's not to say, don't get me wrong, that you can't be happy at that level, but it takes a really special player to be happy at that level. And they have to understand who their kid is and what the chances of their kid having success at that level is, right? And so getting the parents to understand that their kid's happiness should be number one, um, that's how we go about it. So with all that being said, what do you wish every player knew that you know and what do you wish every parent knew that you know going into into a college? Uh, from a playing standpoint, I think players want to play. And so I think players are always trying to rise that like, you know, what is it? The Peter principle, you rise to a level of incompetence, right? So players want to do that too. Um, so I wish 17-year-olds knew how important being on the field was. Because up until that moment, they probably have never been off the field very much. And so they actually have no data points in their life to understand what that's going to do to them when that day comes. Um, players want to play, and not everyone can play. There's only 11 on the field. But uh, the light at the end of the tunnel should be clearly articulated to them. Um, when they get in that moment, they should feel like the bands for them and the timelines for them are accurate. Right, um, they should feel like people are being honest with at what point that playing time is going to hit, um, and it should come sooner than later. I think you know you don't want to be the senior that's now just still fighting for minutes, right? That's it's very anticlimactic of your four years, and and really the last chance you have to play for us, anyways, um, at our level. There's not many that go on and try and make a career of playing. And so, you know, in that, in that last year, it needs to be enjoyable. It needs to be kind of this culmination of all the work and um, sweat and all that and tears and blood and whatever. Um, the, the cliches that people say, it really should be a culmination of everything that you've put into that game. You should also get back. And what about parents? Um, the parents need to find a place where their kid has a really good insurance policy 
meaning you know it's a new atmosphere, it's a new place, it's a new dorm bed, it's new food, it's new everything. Um, there should be systems in place and people in place that are going to, to catch that young man if need be. Um, and so I wish parents were looking through that lens a little bit. Um, not from a, I'm going to do this for your child, but if your child can't, I'm going to be here and we're going to work together to get it back on track. Um, I wish parents were looking through that lens a little bit more. And then I wish, um, I wish parents would take their ego out of the entire equation and try and understand who their kid is and what makes their kid happy and almost default to that as the main motivator for their kid. Wow. Steve, I'm impressed. Continue to be impressed, Steve. Thanks. <laughs> okay. So now we're at Cortland and you're, you're building. You're, you're about to build something. What ideas and values are important I guess we'll say this. What are important to you? And are they the same things that are important to the team or are those two different? They're the same. Okay. Um, so what what values kind of are this is this team built on? So we can every single one of us, we can go back to every moment or decision or action can be a win or a loss. So we'll just start with like a one or a zero. Um, you know, you remembering to call your mom when you said you were going to as an 18 year old kid, you know, away from home. Um, if you remember to win, if you don't, it's a loss. Um, you know, you showing up late to a class, it's a loss. You, you know, forgetting that class's notebook loss. Um, you hitting snooze on your alarm, you know, and really not being excited to get up for the loss, starting with a loss. Um, so I think we can start with, in our culture, everything is a win or a loss. Um, now, that's not to say winning a soccer game, right? Like winning the, the game is our main motivator. But just our behaviors, we can classify into a win or a zero, win or a loss. And we want everything to be a win. That's probably where we start. Um, and I think the players have that too. So if it's a loss... What then? So if it's a zero, how how are zeros addressed? So I want players that are so hungry for the next game, for the next like the next chance to get that W or L, whether it's the phone call with mom or, or any of the examples we just gave. Um, just give me the next game. Let's be that competitive in everything: class, our social lives. Uh, the game, our athleticism. Let's be so hyper-competitive that um, we almost don't think about the losses in the past and, like, where's the next chance to go win something? Um, where's the next chance to go get it right? Okay, so I'm a player. Uh, I'm just getting zeros. Maybe it's a rough, a rough transition, late, not showing up on time, etc. What's the conversation? They're definitely hard conversations. Um, and we can probably as a staff default to um, recruiting to Cortland. Uh, I don't want to say it's not easy, um, but there's a volume about it that 
if a player stacks up enough losses and is not really buying into what we do here, we can definitely go find that same soccer player that'll potentially be a better human for us. Um, and now it's definitely not cut through to the point where, you know, you start screwing up for two days straight and you're off the team, but it's a, you know, hey, you have to look at this from a really real and visceral lens and you have to feel that um, you're something that's much bigger than you. You're, you're a part of something that's much bigger than you, which means it's going to survive regardless of you. Um, now you can add, start adding to that or we can just get somebody else that's going to start adding to that. Um, so those are some of the real conversations um, and trying to get players to know how important it is to buy in early and that grace period that they get to kind of figure themselves out is most likely shorter than they think it's going to be. Tell me about the spreadsheet. The character I traits? I read the article. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about the spreadsheet. Okay, so uh, aside from that, like, we want to win and lose, every, you know, the win and loss thing. Uh, that's definitely number one. So it's the first initial recruits. It's the first thing we talk about on day one of preseason, August 15th. That is number one. Um, so the spreadsheet is uh, 21 character traits that three and a half years ago, the team and staff helped create. And they're character traits that we are all as a group going to buy into and double down on. Um, they're, they're all positive character traits. And so the spreadsheet just allows us to um, get a score, get a grade from their peers on a consistent basis of how that person is doing and their character as a person. Now, is is the list revised each year or is it a constant? Same list, constant. And how? tell me about the, the rating process. How do players feel about it? I think they like it. I think probably the very first time we did it, um, the rating process is definitely the easy part for them or the easiest part for them in the whole in the whole thing. Uh, the very first time we did it, I think kid, guys were a little bit hesitant to really critique and over-critique their peers. So guys probably were not as tough on each other as they are now. Um, I would say that the players now are very honest. It allows them... Uh, it allows them an opportunity to really grade and really assess and critique their peers without saying it right to their face in the moment. But in a roundabout way, that's exactly what they do because all of the numbers and data and, and scores that everyone gets in every aspect of their life, I share that with everybody on the team. And so you can't hide from it. Uh, these are individual conversations. There are no HIPAA laws that prohibit me from sharing with other members of our team. Um, we open the door and we open up and we're very transparent and that's at the point where players can't hide and that's where I think players now are really happy with that because they can honestly critique each other. There's a method to do it and when we sit down in a room together, players get to have a very raw emotion of am I doing well or not based on what the kid next to me thinks of me. How is that honesty encouraged? Because you said it started in a place of hesitancy. 
it's now evolved into a place of, of feeling like there's a there's a safety there. Mm-hmm. How was that psychological safety, to use the, the term, how was that created? So the very first time we did it, we saw that the numbers, maybe the trends matched what the staff was seeing, uh, but the numbers and the volume were not. And so we actually went back and we read right then and there. And I said, you know, look, if you're going through the sheet and if you're going to critique player A, and you're going to give them a grade, and keep in mind the grades are a zero or a one, you know, an X or not. And so um, if you're thinking about player A, and is that player loyal, um, if you have to sit more than one second and think about it, that player probably should should need to work on it. Um, and so that's those are the numbers that we want. We don't want you to run away from this because that doesn't make us better. Um, so we actually got the numbers the very first time, and then we said, right, this doesn't look right. We're going to do this again. And here is the lens that I want you to start to use when you're critiquing each other. This is really cool. Really interesting stuff. How have you seen, or have you seen, I guess is a better way of saying it, have you seen this this work on culture and honesty translate to performance on the field? And if so, how? I think so. Yeah. Um, It's definitely translated to just who they are and they carry those character traits with them off the soccer field as well. And I think that's a really big positive to it because, you know, if you're you're trying to assess a person and their character traits, uh, we can't just say, we'll only assess who they are from two to four every day um, and, and forget about everything else that's happened. It's really hard to do. And so the scores that they get are just overall, who are you as a person? And, you know, these guys spend so much time together. They're living together, eating together. Um, You know, they're spending time on a Saturday night together. They're also studying together. They're uh, in a weight room together. They're in just a lot of different environments. And there's so much time that we know as a staff, these numbers are going to be real and indicative of who they are as a person from sunup to sundown. Um, in terms of performance on the field, uh, there's definitely some character traits in here um, that are probably more driven towards the soccer side of things and the athletic side of things. So, um, you know, work ethic and desire to win, um, desire to improve, uh, committed. You know, when a team member is, is grading you on committed, it's not are you, you know, they're not looking through the lens of are you committed to your girlfriend? It's are you committed to us and the team? And so some of those kind of hot words that we use are definitely soccer-driven and athletic-driven. And so I think the players know that they're just going to be graded and scored on everything that they do and who they are and what they bring, not just to soccer, but everywhere, but then also specifically to, I can't be the kid that has a day where I don't really work hard because all of a sudden my numbers are going to start to go up. Um, and are the, the rating systems that the players use, are they 1-0 or is it different? Yeah, 1-0. Okay. If you have a player, it's it zeros in or a zero out? Uh, zeros are good. Ones are not. Okay. So how are the players that have, you know, we'll call them the zeros, mm-hmm. how are they viewed in context of the team? So the way that the sheet works is you've got character traits along the side of an Excel document and then players' names across the top, and so you get this grid form. Um, 
Obviously, low scores are great. That means, you know, for instance, when we tally up all of these scores, and I have a, I end up with a two in my box for respectful. That means two of my teammates think I need to work on being respectful. The rest of them think that I'm good to go. Um, so low numbers are good. And when we finally tabulate all these, um, and we kind of have this unwritten rule that uh, players need to continually get lower scores every time we do this, this exercise. And so you can't be the kid that stays the same or is going down the different path, right? And so um, right now, our very lowest one, and he had a grand total of one. And so he only had one box that had a one in it. Uh, it's our lowest score ever. Um, he's going to be a senior captain. Um, the next player over is our other senior captain. Grand total of six. You know, so you can think of you know think of the six score is twenty one character traits, thirty players on a team. Um, you know, you could get a final score that's through the roof here, and these players are only getting like a one and a six. Um, the next player over, our next quote unquote best human, I guess if you will, um, is going to be a senior. The one right next to him going to be a senior. Uh, the one right next to him senior. And so our older players perennially are the ones that are on the left side of it, um, the ones with the lowest scores, and essentially the ones that are doing things the right way. So then is it also true that your low, your highest scores are freshmen? Probably the freshman sophomore group, that entire group thing. Yep. And so do you see it as a learning process? 100,000%, yeah. Yep, and that's really, and, and for us, what it should be is you don't have to be perfect. But in our environment, you have to keep getting better. And these character traits, you have to keep getting better at that. And I think it's probably the first time that you know a kid is being assessed on an actual report card on, you know, are you honest? Are you loyal? Are you, do you, have, are you trustworthy? Are you mature? Are you caring? Uh, those type of things. It's probably the first time that they've ever seen numbers on it. And so what we find is that the players that, that have a little bit higher scores – uh, that need work, usually need work and have a high score in two or three categories, right? Um, and so the really positive message from it is, you know, look, you have a high score and you're not a bad person. Overall, you have a couple character flaws that at 18 are understandable. Let's try and get you to 22 and that's no longer a character flaw. Um, you know, let's double down on two or three points of emphasis in your life and what are the decisions that you're going to make as a college kid that are going to either sway positively or negatively certain character traits. Um, so for instance, you know, maturity, um, that's one that you would think in general is going to be higher with freshmen and lower with seniors, right? Um, or from our scale, better in seniors than it is in freshmen. Um, even tempered is one of them, you know, kind of that, that emotional control. In theory, you would think that a senior should have more of that than a freshman, right? Being a little bit more even-tempered, um, having less ego in the game. Um, so some of those we can attribute to some youthfulness maybe, um, but then showing players that, hey, look at your seniors. They don't have that anymore, and you're not seeing them in, in that light. Um, you certainly didn't give them those scores. And so why is that? And how do you get to be the senior that isn't randomly a good person, um, but is very consistently thought out to where 
they had no other choice. And what's your role in this? So what, how do you help this process? What's your role? Definitely just facilitate. And I think the nice part is that, so the staff and I, we've got a lot of distance from this project because, you know, we print the graph, but they fill it out. We analyze it and just tabulate the scores, and then we give it back to them. Um, it's not me saying you're immature, which, you know, would, would hit home with a player very different than, you know, a peer. Um, so we can really sit back and say, right, if you got high scores, great job. If you got low scores, let's just kind of talk about it. Like, let's help you be seen in a better light by your teammates. And so it's less of a, we use it less as a, we don't need you to get low scores. Your teammates are saying you need to get lower scores. We're old enough and have a lens to where we can probably figure this out for you and help you through that process. Yeah. So when I read about the spreadsheet, there's a lot in that article about evolving the concept of the college mail. Yeah. And I'm hoping you can uh, you can talk to me about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with the news out and, and hearing about some of the things that are going on in, in colleges and some of that, just the male, um, the ways that, you know, being a male, quote unquote, manifests really negatively in a college environment is pretty scary. Um, and I think everyone in a college environment um, and and before, you know, so even kids in their high school environments, um, the people that are influencers should be taking really keen note on that and say, how do I change it? Just in our small place right here in Coil, New York, like how do I change that here so that not so that we're not having to deal with that, but so that our culture and our place is different. And that when those stories pop up, we say, wow, thank God we're here. Um, I think people need to be making really keen note of that. Um, and I think it's it goes to um, the maybe like a subculture of youth today is almost like defaulting to the common, common lowest denominator of, you know, it's almost cool to not be the smartest kid. And it's almost cool to you know, get in trouble once in a while. And it's, um, you know, it's cool to use all the bad language and, and the slang and, um, you know, some of the things that are quote unquote cool for these young kids, they have to learn is actually really not cool when that manifests in the real world. And when you're doing it behind, you know, whether it's a computer screen, a social media account, um, who you are in the classroom, who you are on a Saturday night, um, you know, what's cool is just being an amazing human. Um, you know, and teaching the 18 year old that to let go of all the things that, you know, mainstream media and social media and some of those things that, um, are bombarding kids these days, teaching them to let go of that instantly is a tough task. It's a tall order, but it's really the only way to change where you're at. I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's a, it's a major issue right now, uh, in this country with a lot of attention on it. Uh, about evolving our ideas of what uh, men should be. How do you recruit this? So when you're recruiting, you can see a kid play, you great skill. But what? 
how do you look for these cultural aspects you're talking about? How do you find them? Or, or maybe you don't, but how do you kind of suss those out in the recruiting process? One, I think I probably could have made a career as a uh, personal investigator. <laughs> and so I will definitely pour through um, Google searches, social media searches, um, you know, hashtags. Um, I'll look at the school's accounts and what they're posting at the school and the high school and the club teams and just kind of pour over everything that I can get my hands on um, as just doing some real due diligence in terms of a background check. Calling coaches, calling teachers, calling high school guidance officers, um, trying to at least do as much as we can, right? And you, I don't think you can ever get it 100% perfect, but we at least start there of we're going to do our job at trying to find out what's really going on here. Um, the bigger one, though, is when the kid sits in the office and we show them all this stuff and, you know, we show them, hey, this is what we do here. And like I said, this is the first thing that comes out August 15th during preseason, but it's also the first thing that comes out of my mouth in a recruiting visit. Um, I open up that document. And I say, this is who we are. Um, and I just watch the reaction. I watch the parents' reaction. Um, you can always tell if someone, you know, is a little bit deer in the headlights and something makes them nervous. And so instantly I know that that maybe isn't what they're looking for. And I tell them that, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get perfect scores, but you have to buy into the fact that you want to get better at all this every single day. Yeah. And so I don't try and recruit kids that would start at zeros. I try and recruit kids that are definitely want to end senior year at the lowest score they possibly can. Wow. So the second part of this is I know you're also involved with uh, youth soccer. Yeah. In fact, you're the director of coaching and club standards as of Syracuse Development Academy. I want to focus on the club standards part because in the coaching world, I haven't seen that before. So what is that and what does it mean to you? Yeah, so I actually wanted that to be part of the title when I first got hired. I said, you know, look, this is important to me. Um, I wouldn't see myself as, as your typical director of coaching like in every other club soccer environment where it's only about the coaching. Um, let me take some different avenues with this and, and create some documents and let me show you what I'm talking about. And so that was my first conversation with the administration, with the club. Um, and they loved it. They, they said, yep, go ahead. Um, show us what you got and, and what you're thinking about here. And really it just comes down to, I want to standardize the way that we, as coaches, treat players. Um, so the, the way that it's delivered, whether you are the best kid on the roster or worst kid on the roster from a soccer perspective. Let's just all start at a human is a human is a human. Um, and let's make sure that our the way that we are delivering the game to kids is consistent. Um, and we're always on the right side of the line. So that was one. Two is I wanted to try and standardize and increase the communication and pathway between coach and parent. I think parents need to be closer to the project and not further away. And I think coaches that want parents to be further away from the project are maybe not trying to hide something, but know that when the parent does come closer, they're going to have objections to it. Um, and so if we can deliver in a consistent manner the game in a really great way for kids, well, we should want parents to be involved in that too. Um, and so it's, educating parents it's teaching parents um you know what the conversation should be like in the car ride home 
what the conversation should be like, um, the way to practice from practice. Um, we should try and standardize um, the way that the parent knows what's being delivered, so the content, where, what topics are being worked on, um, where that kid stands kind of, you know, with all of those different topics, what they need to work on. Um, so it was really just taking this, um, creating a culture, if you will, uh, approach to youth soccer in the entire club. Because I think sometimes you go and you, you watch these clubs, especially when you're recruiting, and you know their U15 team might do things so differently and look different, have a different feel than their U16 team, which to me is crazy. But it really just comes down to the two coaches are different. And the two coaches are really left to um, run things exactly how they want to run it. And there's no overhead, there's no umbrella, there's no kind of series of standards, club standards, that everyone adheres to. And what's your uh, tactical reference point in the world of soccer? Uh, rephrase that, what do you mean? Uh, do you have a particular team, international team, or style, or how would you uh, describe your preferred style of play? Uh, I wouldn't have, I don't say I have a team that dictates uh, kind of my philosophy on it. I am very much an attacking, um, kind of an unsnap the holsters and shoot everything that moves and let's, you know, win a game 5-4 before we try and win it one nothing. Um, so very attack-minded. Um, I want players to get forward. I want players to, to have fun and score goals and be dynamic. Um, I think attacking is exciting. It brings about a lot of positive emotion. Um, in general, me shooting on a goal is exciting. You know, there's a there's an adrenaline there. There's um, you know probably an, an endorphin release, right? A dopamine release in the brain. There's like all these things things that probably happen that make attacking soccer much more fun. Um, now, on the flip side, I'm getting shot at and defending, and all we're trying to do is. Um, you know, limit the damages. It's more stressful. Um, it's it's more somber. You know, it, it's got some of those kind of feels to it. And so I don't ever want a team that feels that way. I want a team that feels like they are dynamic and they can express themselves and they can get forward and they can laugh and they can go celebrate. And that to me is, is definitely kind of a, at the forefront of tactically and how we want to try and play um which is really strange because i was a goalkeeper so <laughs> i kind of understand that that might be um counterintuitive to everyone but yeah that's i think who i am as a coach very attack-minded and that comes out i think in 2014 um we were playing against messiah in the sweet 16 and so we had a couple injuries leading up to it. Uh, we had some new players that were in the starting 11, uh, which was great for them. And everyone that we had talked to, like scouting reports and getting advice and how do you play against Messiah type of people, um, like they just started everything with you have to defend this way. You have to, you know, not let your outside backs get forward, so on and so forth. Um, and so we kind of made this conscious decision as a staff of like, are we just going to sit in and try to not 
you know, trying for a tie? Like, are we going to try for like nip a goal and we'll just sit? And which would have been, we hadn't done that all year. It's up to that moment. And we made a decision. No way. Like, we're just going to go for it. We ended up losing six nothing, um, which was definitely fair on the day. Um, but we left saying, you know, we just did things how we did things. And, you know, our team talks were the same, and here's how we're going to attack, and here's what we're going to do. Um, so, yeah, that kind of leads to – I don't want to change who we are as soccer players based on the opponent. I want us to be the soccer players that we are, and we're going to face an opponent, and it's going to work really well, or maybe it's not, but let's just be the same soccer player every day. How does your team deal with fear? They definitely probably feared more teams early in my career than they do now. Um, and again, you know, we went from not winning a lot of games to now we're we're winning some of those really big games. Um, so I think the players have less fear now in terms of can we actually compete at this level. And so now it's I think the fear would be, geez, are we actually good enough? which was probably the 2012, 13, 14 type of era, to are we going to have a really great day? Um, and not only am I going to have a really great day, but is all 30 of us going to have a really great day? And so that's maybe the fear that our guys have now is, you know, are we going to be on? Are we going to you know, be right at that kind of peak of you know, arousal and, and not go overboard and not go underboard and do we all have that? Did we prepare in the right ways? That's probably more the fear that we have now. Right. What's next for you? What's next for you and your program? What's the next evolution? Hmm. We'd love to keep winning more games at the end. <laughs> That's number one. Um, you know, I think it's something that I want for the players um, because I want like a first group of, or I want a group of players that has done things that haven't been done before. I think that would be really cool. Um, and to offer that experience to a group of 30 kids that can sit there and say, you know, in the history of the program, we haven't done this before. And so school records kind of go into those. And we've had a few school records here in my tenure. Um, and that's pretty neat, but, um, and school records are actually probably very neat at Cortland because of its athletic tradition and history. Uh, they're not easy to attain by any means. You know, there's a, a long history of people doing really great things at this school. So um, just new ventures for players, you know, new things and new wins and new milestones. Um, I think in the future, we're definitely doubling down on the kind of who we are piece, uh, the character trait piece, um, I've found that that's definitely the right answer right now, and so we're going to spend more time and energy and resources into that. Um, you know, we've got three years worth of data with the character trait stuff to say this is right. We are on the right track. Um, we can't go backwards. We have to go forwards. We have to do more. Um, that's definitely going to be a new venture. Uh, some different things in terms of for us, like we will personality trait uh, test all of our players and. What do you use? So we use um, the True Colors, which is a four-color kind of grid. And then we also do a Myers-Briggs. And so we'll have this kind of continuum 
on a spreadsheet where everybody has a color and a, and a type, one of 16. And we've created documents that, you know, if you are this personality type and this color, uh, here's how we motivate that person. Here's how we give feedback. Here's how we retain. Here's how we make them happy. Um, here's who they are in general type of thing. And so um, I think the next two to three years are going to be us really pushing that side of it too. Um, and so I'll always make the claim that with the personality type and how we need to give feedback and how do we need to vote motivate, um, the staff and I will not get that wrong. And so as a young player, you can rest assured that you're going to do their homework, going to do their homework so diligently as terms of who they are as a person. My delivery to you will definitely be spot on. Um, I would like to one day get to where our team has that too with each other and that they're going to be so bought into who they are that how they say things, how they communicate to one another, there won't be a disconnect there. Um, and I think we're, we're on the right track. We're definitely, I wouldn't say that we're hundred percent right now. Our senior leaders are really buying into that type of thing, but that's probably a, a two to three year project for us right now. Well, this is actually a really fascinating evolution uh, of the team concept, especially in the United States where we've come from this athletic based technical tactical focus um and now what you see all, all across really all sports spectrum is this 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 identification of the need for the psychosocial aspects that is so much about the person and in, in your case it's the person the player coach relationship mm -hmm. which is so fundamental so to see, to hear you frame your evolution in terms of a psychosocial model is is really really interesting to me because, I mean, you could have said, we want to run faster. We want to lift more weights, right? We want to pass better to the outside foot, um, which I think is, is maybe a misconception for many coaches. But the psychological elements, uh, I have to agree with you. I think that is the next evolution. Definitely, yeah. Um, and tracking it, too. You know, that's the hardest part is that, um, you know, we can wear GPS and, and heart rate, and, and we do, right? And we try not to get that stuff wrong either, but... Um, you know, there's no wearable right now for right. <laughs> where right. you're at and what, what's your mental state, right? And so, um, until those pieces get here, if they ever do, you know, we're kind of at the crux of, you know, what people were doing scientifically before we were heart rate monitoring, right? Um, and like everybody had their own ways of, you know, what physical fitness tests do you do? And um, so now it's, you know, emotionally what tests do you do and personality wise what tests are you doing um, and a lot of it is self-reported by players and so there's definitely room for improvement just in how everyone's collecting data um, but then at the same time uh, you know just like everybody can get a gps printout of a player right but what my eyes and my brain are going to do with that with that player are going to be different than any other coach and so that's, I think, the emotional, psychosocial piece of playing, too, is that um, in the next five to ten years, we're going to start to get probably some more real concrete data on that stuff. Um, but then again, coaches have to be really keen on evolving to, well, what are you doing with that data and what's the right answer for performance? You know, really, and, and not just soccer performance, but performance in general, you know, classroom, social, and, and on the soccer field, so... So where did, you, where did you learn this? 
how do you know about this psychological stuff? I'll read a ton. Um, I'm a, so my drive to work right now is, is 20, 25 minutes. And so um, I'm kind of a podcast junkie. Uh, I listen to a lot of them. Um, I'll read books. Kind of like just uh, anything I can get my hands on that is new and innovative, I'll love to read about. Um, so I'm not necessarily... I, I, getting through a book about the history of the game in the 60s, I can't trudge through that. Um, it does nothing for me. But someone that's going to offer their thoughts on what the game looks like in you know, 2025, I'll love it. I'll eat that stuff up. Um, so that's where I think a lot of this passion comes from, is just trying to take you know, ideas from everywhere and blend it to a place where it's usable. Uh, we can actually make different decisions on a daily basis with it here in Cortland. Uh, you know, some of the things that are being done at the very, very top of the professional level, we don't have the resources here to do that. Um, but I still like learning about it and then kind of thinking over it for a few weeks and like, how do we do similar things or take that base idea and what can we do here? Yeah, that's really cool. What are some books or resources that you would recommend for anyone who wants to lead a human system? Yeah, uh, let's see. So probably my favorite book that I've gone through um, is Anti-Fragile. And it's a heavy read. It's a deep read. Like I still go through it and will, you know, read three pages at a time, times 10. Uh, and I'll just, you know, read those same three pages 10 times over and just really try and like pull out what's going on there. Um, but it's kind of under this assumption that uh, we have a term fragile we have a term resilient but there's no real like consistent term for anti-fragile and that's where the book's title came from um you know how do you get better under stress um you know the the tree that is in maryland that gets an inch of ice all the branches fall off and that same exact tree in canada sits with foot of snow on it for you know years to come so um humans are, are no different you know the biological system that a human is um how do you create that where someone's going to get better under stress, you know, be absolutely at their peak under higher levels of stress. That's a big one. Um, I really like the Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, that's probably a little bit cliche because everybody seems to love Tim Ferriss. Um, but I think going into kind of some of the minutia there with some of his guests is really, really good. Um, even if they're not even in a realm close to ethics, you know, just um, people that are elite, no matter what field they're in, um, I think I'm always trying to learn about what that is and why and how they're doing it. So those would probably be the two. You know, if I could give a book, it would be Anti-Fragile. If I could give a podcast, it would be Tim Ferriss. Um, I also like that book, uh, Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko Willenick. I think that one's really good. Uh, we use that with our college players a lot because that's probably the one thing that 18-year-olds don't have a lot of is like a set of routines and behaviors and um, even just day-to-day. -day. You know, they don't wake up at the same time. They don't go to bed at the same time. Uh, they're not eating the same things. They're not, they're not living their life in like a really routine, consistent manner. So we use that book with our team quite a bit to try and help them along that path of routining out their life and figuring out their own personal recipe that makes them at their best every day. Yeah, those are probably the hot ones that I've really bought into in the last three to four years. Yeah, that's great. 
Okay, finish the sentence. You build an intentional culture by... Creating a set of expectations that are non-negotiable. At Cortland, our expectations are... Be a great human. At Cortland, you are a great human by... Giving the absolute best you can to every person you come across every day. The mission statement of the Cortland men's soccer team is... I am we are. Um, Ooh, unpack that. What's that? Yes. Um, unpack that. So just... Uh, so whatever I am, we are. And everyone can say that. That's interesting. And so that's on wow. that's on our scarves. That's on our wall. That's our that's our team chant. Um, you know, our captain will yell out "I am," and everyone else yells out "We are." And where did that come from? We made it. Just organically developed. Yeah. That's fantastic, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I've just been very impressed by, by not only you, but the culture you've built at Cortland. Thanks. And uh, in my humble opinion, to all the parents and recruits listening to this, uh, this is a, a program that I would highly recommend. Thanks so I much. Think it, it, yeah, I think the focus is where it's supposed to be, which is on uh, young people becoming better versions of themselves. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Steve. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Performance Rising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org. And be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.